0: Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. My name is Justin and I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, really good to be with you this morning. I keep wondering why my my wife and everybody that knows me says my voice just keeps getting scratchier and scratchier and scratchier. If you go back and listen to the old sermons, uh, apparently I had some kind of angelic voice back then. Uh, But when I have two services every week to preach, but not only that, but worship like that, and I can't just sit there and be quiet, like, That worship was outstanding, and I am thankful that we got a a worship team and Joel, Deacon of Worship, that leads us in such amazing worship that I get to follow that is absolute and absolute joy. But it's terrible for my voice, actually. So you can pray for me. Um, If you are new to the church, it's a great time for you to be joining us. God has been doing some great things here at Sacred City. Just in the past few weeks, we've seen people come to faith. We've seen folks getting baptized. We've seen folks professing their faith. We've had Christians getting married and babies being born, and all of that is spiritual fruit, spiritual fruit and to God be the glory. We also had eight men feel called by God to step into the elder pastor development process, and we got to consecrate them to God a couple weeks ago. And on top of all of that, we have more people worshiping with us than ever before. Uh, and that's a big deal because most churches are about 80% right now of their pre-COVID numbers, and we are over 100%. So we are back to our pre-COVID numbers and above. So God has been really gracious to us in that area, and uh, momentum seems to be gathering and building for our advanced building campaign, and we are really excited about that. Uh, Last week, after the sermon, I had men reaching out to me, asking for help in reading their Bible and seeking direction in leading their homes, Um, I honestly don't think there has ever been a time in our church where I have been more excited about the future that God has uh, called us to and God is leading us into. It is a great time to be a part of our church. But one of the lessons that the book of Nehemiah is teaching us is this, what God builds, Satan wants to destroy. What God builds, Satan wants to destroy Theologian J.I. Packer says this, quote, Satan is a hater, a wrecker, and a destroyer. And only when he is ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he happy. So we, as God's people, need to keep our head on a swivel and prepare ourselves for Satan's attacks against us. Now, so far in Nehemiah, we have seen the attacks primarily have come from two sets of people in two very distinct ways. First, they come by the outright enemies of God, right? And who was that? That was the surrounding pagan nations um, united together around a couple of loudmouth dunderheads named Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, dunderhead wasn't in the official, you know, text, but it was implied. It was implied, Right? These guys were powerful pagan princes, basically, governors who wanted to stop the kingdom of God from gaining an outpost in their region. So they got a bunch of pagans together. They united together to come against God's people. And they came against God's people in two ways. One, through words, through ridicule, making fun of them, propaganda, and through threats of violence against them, right? Now, that's the first group of people that came against them, the the outright enemies, But then we got to see uh, the the surrounding Jews. Now, these were God's people. They were God's people. I'm going to use our language. They would call themselves Christians, okay? But they weren't actively working on the wall. They weren't in the mission. They weren't making disciples, right? They were the people who were spectators, who should have been helping out, but they were either unconvinced of it being God's will or they were just too burdened by their worldly affairs or too distracted by their own stuff going on in their own, own life to actually get in the mission and lend a hand and get to work. And what did these Jewish people do? What did these Christians on the, on the sidelines, what did they say? Ten times, the scripture says. Now listen, every word in the Bible is there for a reason. God didn't waste any words. So when he puts it in there that they did this 10 times, we should get the the idea that these people were incessant at their job. They were just nagging the Christians who were at work. They were just nagging them going, and what were they saying? this... Job is too big for you. You're going to fail. You're going to look stupid. Stop hoping for the culture to be changed. You've already lost the culture war. Just give up and come back on the sidelines like us. Live like a defeated minority. Live like things are never going to change. Stop your work. Ten times they said this to them. Just go back to normal. Don't hope for a Christian future. Again, we saw the, the attacks were physical and the attacks were Um, psychological, right? Mental warfare. And over the last four chapters, we saw Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great leader. He's a great example of what we're calling a well-differentiated leader. A well-differentiated leader does not give in to the anxiety of others does not cave when the pressure gets hard, does not give in to people's emotional state of mind. He chooses what's right and he moves forward no matter what. And we see Nehemiah navigate intense, difficult leadership challenges with poise, with vision, and with courageous, decisive action. Last week when chapter 4 ended, Nehemiah, as a great leader, had all of God's people armed to fight with a weapon in one hand and armed to work to build with a tool in the other, right? He had prepared his people well for the attack of the enemy and to keep working even when the going gets tough, right? Now, we too are meant to keep our eyes up and our head on a swivel while we are building the institution that God, institutions that God has called us to build, and we are to to stay ready to fight and to protect those institutions when the need arises from, typically from outside threats. But this week, Nehemiah draws our attention to one of the most discouraging realities about being in God's church. The enemies often come from within. Let me pray for us. And let's get to work in Nehemiah chapter 5. Gracious Father, we come to you in desperate need of grace. We need the grace that straightens out crooked, crooked thinking. We need the grace that restores the soul. We need the grace that forgives sin. We need the grace that leads us into which way we should go. We need the grace that empowers us for future obedience. We need the grace that enables us to see you as good, great, gracious, and glorious and worthy of all of our praise. We need grace that helps us to see our sin and turn from it. We need grace. And you are the only God who gives such grace. So we come to you in need of it this morning. God, I come to you in need of grace. I am a sinner. I am crooked in myself, and I need you to straighten me out. I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. Would you draw a straight line with a crooked stick this morning? Would you use me to speak to your people, and when your people hear your voice, and would they be changed by it, would they respond positively to it, and if, would they follow you uh, as they leave here today, more committed to follow you in all areas of life? Would you do this work for the glory of your name, and the good of our city, and the joy of every heart in this room? Jesus name I pray amen well if you will open up your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 5 we've got some work to do Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1 now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers against their Jewish brothers So we see here an interfaith conflict. Something is happening within the covenant community, within the church, and it's causing them to cry out. Now, we can't blow past this verse. When it says that, quote, a great outcry arose among them, these are the same words used by God's people when Pharaoh was chasing them down during the Exodus and had them trapped against the sea. Exodus 14.10 says this, quote, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So a great cry came out. Now, here's the, here's the scene. They're getting attacked by their enemies from outside. They're being ridiculed by their Jewish neighbors and, 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 told, and kind of demoralized and told, just get back, just come back with us, stop working. And now their Jewish brothers from within their midst are rising up against them. And now they're just like crying out to God, right? It's like another thing, another problem, enemies on the outside and enemies on the inside. Are you kidding me? So we need to see here that something scary and painful is going on within the community. And what we're going to learn very quickly is that this issue... It's basically about money. Now, I don't know about you, but money stresses me out faster than almost anything. A few years ago, um, we decided to sell our house and, and buy another house. Um, found, my, my wife found this house and it was our house, dream house and everything. And I said, no, it wasn't. And I went through it. And I said, Jamie, hey, she's right. And then she convinced me to buy it. And I said, you know what? I think this is the right thing to do. Let's do it. And our realtor said, nope, you'll have no problem selling your house more than likely. And it was true right away. Boom. Got an offer on our house. Wasn't a big deal. Moved into our new house. Everything was going great. And then a few days before our house closed, that that, that buyer backed out. All of a sudden, oh, a little nervous now. I got two mortgage payments. And then it happened one other time. And it ended up, and then all of a sudden, the stress started building, and the fear started building. And... Uh, it ended up taking like seven months to, to sell our house. And by the grace of God, we did, but, um, but that stress and that fear start there's something about money that connects deeply to my heart, deeply to my mind, deeply to my nerves. And that all of a sudden, my nerves started unraveling, my emotions started unraveling, my, uh, my hormones started to unravel. And I went into full blown adrenal fatigue. I was w- getting woken up at 2 a.m., sw- sweating. I was fearful. I couldn't go back to sleep. I had all kinds of physical issues, emotional issues, spiritual issues. It was a, su- it was a scary, difficult season of my life. And I know anytime the issue of money comes up, many people have very similar re- reactions. You know, my wife. Knows me so well that she can look at me and go, you're thinking about money right now, aren't you? You don't know me. She's like, I know that face. And you make that face every time you're thinking about money. And it's usually when you're thinking about that money don't go as far as it used to, does it? Right? You're worrying about money. How are you going to pay for the future education of your kids? How are you going to pay for college? How are you going to pay for retirement? All that stuff. You start thinking and you, you start having a physical reaction. Well, that's exactly what's going on here in Nehemiah. Some money issues are, arrive, uh, are arising within the church and it's making things really difficult. Now, Nehemiah is going to show us four groups of people in verses two through five, okay? These four groups of people, my contention is they're in this room as well. These four groups of people are in almost any society that's been around for a while. Let's look at them. Number one, uh, we're going to look here in chapter five, verse two. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. Okay, these folks got big families, praise God. But they say this, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now, what is, what's going on here? What group of people is this? This is the poor who are living hand to mouth. You see, they say, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So these people don't get grain immediately. They don't have savings, right? And so they're, going, they're literally going to die. These are folks who have no assets and they're struggling to feed their families. What we're going to see really shortly is there's a famine going on. So these are folks that live paycheck to paycheck. And when things get difficult, extreme pressure gets pl- placed upon them. Look at the second group of people in verse, verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So we can see this is extenuating circumstances. There's a famine going on. Now, these are the second group of people. These are the Israelites who own some assets, right? They've been wise in their earlier life and they've got land and they've got vineyards and they've got homes. God has blessed them. But now they've been hit by this terrible famine, and guess what? You can't feed your family with lands and and homes and all these things, right? And so your home isn't really worth much if you don't have food to feed your children. So what do you do? You go to the bank, you go to lenders, and you mortgage those assets in order to buy food in order to feed your family, right? So that's the group number two. They've got assets, they can mortgage them in a difficult financial downturn, and they can still meet the needs of their family. Look at the third group, though. Verse uh, 4. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Look at this. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Indentured servants here. Think debt slavery. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Vineyards. Here's the third group. These were those who had the assets and they had already mortgaged those assets in order to feed their families. And now, already mortgaged to the hilt, now the king taxes them. And they get a tax bill in the mail where they got to pay, quote unquote, uh, for us. Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam still wants his deal. We've got a famine going on. We've already mortgaged our assets. We've already done everything we can do. And now I got a tax bill in the mail. So what did they do? The only way out for them, they couldn't file, you know, file for bankruptcy. We didn't have, they didn't have that back then. The only thing they could do is go to their, what we're going to see, go to their rich brothers and sisters, go to the rich Christians among them. This is the language I'm going to use and ask for more loans. And how, did they, how were they doing that? they said, hey, I will give you my son, I will give you my daughter to pay off this loan. And it's basically indentured servitude. The text specifically mentions daughters here because they could be sold as a second wife to the rich to pay off their debts. So what we see here is an awful financial situation all around. We have a downturn in the economy. We've got the king's tax that's coming on top of that. And we have the rich Jewish people among them basically buying their children to pay off their debts. Now, what are we learning here? This is what we're about to see. There is never a bad situation that sinners can't make worse. This is universally true. There is never a bad situation that sinners can't make worse. And what we're going to see here is when, when the economy goes down, the rich get richer most of the time. When the economy goes down, here's what happens. Those who have mortgaged themselves to the hilt, the, the, the middle class, the lower class that haven't saved money and prepared themselves for a downturn in the economy, the assets they own, they sell off. And when they, to feed their family. And when they sell off those assets in a downturn in an, in an economy, they get low prices for them. So the rich who have prepared themselves for this, this time, millionaires are made during recessions. And they look out there and the poor need to feed their family and the middle class need to pay their mortgage bills. So they start selling off extra cars, selling off extra assets. And the rich step in and guess what they do? They buy those assets and they buy those assets low, at a low price. And then they wait for the economy to recover. And when the economy recovers and the middle class want those assets back, now they sell them back to the middle class at a higher premium, right? And that's how the rich often get richer in downturns in the economy. The question is, what do Christians do with one another during seasons such as this? How should a Christian community respond to a downturn in the economy and their brothers and sisters in Christ being in a very difficult financial situation? How should we respond? Well, this is interesting. I guess you could say that depends. It depends on who they serve. It depends on what God are they worshiping. Because if they're worshiping God... They would sacrifice these opportunities to make a profit at the expense of their brothers and sisters, and they should help them out. They should be generous with their brothers and sisters. But if they, instead of worshiping God, worship something else, let's say an idol. Now what is an idol? An idol is anything a human being worships other than God. Now that immediately we're like, well, geez, that's weird. That's old. Like, those little statues and stuff people used to put on their mantle or people used to put in their, a room in their house and they'd bow down and worship them. Who does that? Well, most people don't worship physical idols anymore. Well, actually, there's lots of religions in the world that do. But the Bible talks about idol, idolatry first begins in the heart. And you make an idol of something in your heart when anything other than God has your attention, has your heart's de- desires, Your affections, your love, and you pour out your worship on anything more than you worship God. Now, what? How would I pour out worship to an idol? Well, where does your attention go? Where does your time go? Where do your affections go? Where does your money go? Right. You pull out that phone, or maybe an hour or so ago, some of you your phone vibrated in in your pocket, and it gave you your screen time report. The most judgmental moment on earth is not during a sermon like this. It's when you read that screen time report and there's no hiding it. Five hours. And then you just, most of you just put it away. You click on, most of you, all you care about is down 3% from last week. Hey, that's a win. Not if you're on it for eight hours. Okay. It's not a win, right? There's no hiding from the screen time report. But what is that? Look, what are you doing when you're on YouTube? What are you doing when you're on, uh, on social media? What are you doing with your phone, right? You could pull up that YouTube history. Are you, is it all sports related? Is it all money related, right? Is it all, what, what is it? That where your time or your attention, where your finances go is usually where you, what you worship. It's usually what's first in your mind and first in your heart. And for these people, these believers here, The idol was money. So here's the great problem with church. See, we all come together and we say we worship Jesus. We all come together and say Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But the reality is, is that oftentimes something other than Jesus is actually Lord of our life. We're actually worshiping something other than God in the chief affections of our heart. We're going to see what happens when that happens. And we're also going to see Nehemiah's response. Now, this is interesting. Nehemiah sees this as an attack. You're going to see it in his response. He sees this idolatry of the people in his own covenant community as an attack on the covenant community. And so look at his response in verse 6. I was very angry When I heard their outcry and these words, I was very angry. Did you know that it is a biblical command for you to get angry? Many people think it's a sin to get angry. It is not a sin to get angry. The Bible tells us be angry and do not sin. It is a biblical command to get angry at injustice. When you see somebody being taken advantage of, when you see a brother or sister not being treated fairly or rightly according to Scripture, that should make you angry. And Nehemiah, as a well-differentiated, good leader, sees injustice in his church, and that makes him very angry. Now, many of us and our, our society right now is infatuated with the gentle and lowly Jesus. And Jesus is indeed gentle and lowly. He, he is that in his nature. The problem is you don't get to define what gentleness looks like. Jesus gets to define what is gentle and lowly. And what happens is Nehemiah here gets angry and he does something. Just like Jesus gets angry in the temple. Do you remember what was happening in the temple? The temple, the church, let's just call it like this, the church of the living God, you're meant you go there to have your sins forgiven, to have sacrifices, and the priests and the money changers were turning it into a house of profit. Where the poor could come and, and they would sell them their sacrificial animals and they would charge too much for them and they would take advantage of the poor. And what does the gentle and lowly Jesus do when he sees that? Does he walk in and go, Guys, guys, you're not being fair. Guys, be sweet to one another. Come on, guys. Can't we all get along, guys? Come on. Come on, guys. Many people worship that Jesus, and he's a figment of your imagination. Jesus comes in like a full-blooded male, all right? He comes in masculine. He sees an injustice, and he gets angry. He does not react. He does not explode emotionally. See, Jesus shows you what gentleness looks like when it sees biblical injustice. It looks like righteous anger. Jesus is always gentle. So when we see him, what he's doing in this temple, flipping tables. First off, he walks in and he makes a whip out of rope. Just showing us this was not an emotional reaction. He's taking time. He's responding appropriately. He's thinking about what he's about to do. And he's like, that guy's first. (laughs) And whoom! And he starts whipping people with the, the rope that he made or with the whip that he made. And he flips tables and he's doing it all gently. What does it mean? How can you flip tables and whip somebody gently? Because you're in control. You're not freaking out. You haven't lost self-control. You're doing this as a holy response to injustice against people. Injustice in the house of God. This should be the place where justice happens. Biblical justice. This should be the place where people are treated fairly. And he walks in and sees people not being treated fairly according to the law of God. And he reacts because they're sinning against God. And he reacts in an angry way. And that is holy. And that is righteous. And that is the way Jesus displayed gentleness in that situation. So Nehemiah does the exact same thing in this situation. He gets angry, but he doesn't lose his mind. He doesn't sin in his anger. Look what he says here. Verse where are we at? Verse four. Did I skip that? Six. Goodness gracious. Sorry, seven, yeah. I'm sorry, seven. And I seven. And I took counsel with myself. Again, just like Jesus. Jesus took his time to make that whip. He says, I took counsel with myself. This is what he did. He saw something that made him really angry. And he said, I need a moment. Okay, let's go. Right, He collected his thoughts to make sure he was operating out of self-control. He wasn't just being pushed by his emotions. I took counsel with myself, and look at this. I brought charges against the nobles and officials. Here's the fourth group of people. They're called nobles, they're called officials. Basically, they're the rich. They're the, we could call them Jewish brothers who are rich. We could call them Christian rich. They're the ones who have the assets, they have the the physical assets, and also the the liquid assets, they have the cash, they have the grain, they have the food. They are not worried about the famine. They're They're gonna be fine, and they're gonna gobble up assets during this famine, and they're gonna come out of that famine better than they went into it. These are the people that make him mad. Now, why? I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother's. Now, this is why Nehemiah starts going hard in the paint after his fellow Christians here. They are, quote, exacting interest from their Christian brothers. Now, this needs some explanation. The Bible warns against the dangers of debt. It says that we are to owe no man anything but to love him. Specifically, we are told in Scripture to avoid high interest debt and we are to live within our means, practicing the biblical virtue of contentment. Scripture tells us where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if you are in debt to someone, you become a slave to them and you are not walking in that freedom. However, it is not a sin, biblically, to take out a loan to make a business investment. And it's not a sin to make a business investment and expect to receive back interest on that investment. Jesus tells us this. If you remember the the parable of the servants, that Jesus gave four talents to one guy, and that guy went out and doubled the money and brought it back to Jesus, and Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. He gave two to another guy. That guy went out and doubled his money. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And he gave one talent to one guy, and that guy buried it in the ground, And Jesus came back and he gave him that one talent. And Jesus said, you should have invested this with the bankers and got me profit on this, got me interest on this, right? And he said, that servant was not a good servant, right? So the Bible doesn't condemn outright charging interest or gaining interest on your money. But the Bible does outright condemn the sin of usury. Now, If you you read the King James Version and you read this verse in the King James Version, it says they were practicing usury, not just taking interest, not just exacting interest. See, usury is the unjust practice of charging exorbitant interest. Think most credit cards. This is why using a credit card is very dangerous and is often foolish if you don't have the self-control to pay it off every month. Scholars say these rich Israelites were charging 14% interest to loan their, belie- their believing brothers and sisters money to buy food. So they've already got the deeds to their property, they've already brought their, their, their kids in as indentured servants, and now they're loaning them money with, on, with 14% interest. They're taking advantage of a downturn in the economy and all their, the negative circumstances here. So we have the rich Israelites... Breaking God's clear commandments in order to take advantage of the market conditions and make more money at their poorer brothers' expense. This is what causes Nehemiah to get very angry. Look at verse 8. And Nehemiah says to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So here's what Nehemiah is telling us one thing he did. Nehemiah, as the governor, one of the things he did once he got back in town was he was using the taxes that he was getting from the people of God, and he was using those taxes to go buy back the Jews who had been taken off into slavery to the surrounding nations. So he was buying back his brothers to build up the the workforce, right? Let's go get one of the promises. If you're faithful to me, God will go back and bring you from the nations. So Nehemiah was fulfilling that prophecy. Nehemiah was going back and buying people. And now these Israelites were like, oh, well, Nehemiah's going to buy those guys. Maybe I'll buy those guys too and then sell them to Nehemiah. If we got government invo- if the government's involved, those guys are morons. They'll definitely pay top dollar for this. So that's exactly what these Jewish guys were doing. Keep reading. They were silent and could not find a word to say. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So here's what happens. Nehemiah hears what's going on and he calls out the rich and they're like, (gasps) they're silent. What you've been doing is not right. You're taking advantage of your poor brothers and sisters. Silence. Verse nine. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What's he saying here? He's saying something other than God has your fear. What does that mean? Fear, awe, imagination has captured your heart. He's saying, if you had God as your first, if you were worshiping God, you would be treating your brothers and sisters fairly. But because something has taken the place of God, you are treating them unfairly, unjust, and it's bringing destruction to the movement of God. He's saying, you have a false God. And he's saying, and that false God, you're worshiping money? And now you're treating your brothers and sisters like debtors and creditors. You're taking advantage of them. And guess what? The world is watching. The nations are looking at us. And the nations should be looking at us and going, what is God like? And what are God's people like? What does his kingdom look like on earth? Is his kingdom gracious? Is his kingdom good? Is his kingdom just? Is it honorable? What is his kingdom like? And they look in and they see the rich taking advantage of their own poor and they laugh at God because of it. He's saying, you should be ashamed of yourself here. In other words, you're claiming to worship God, but you're worshiping something else. You have forgotten God and you are ignoring him and his clear commandments. Why? Because an idol has taken his place in your mind and heart and what is that idol? It's money. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 says this, "For the love of money is a root to all kinds of evils." It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hear that, "The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil." Not money itself, the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. You're looking at a Christian community. Why is there gossip? Why is there slander? Why is there broken relationships? Why are the rich taking advantage of the poor? All of that is because they've replaced God with the love of money. It leads to that kind of disorder. Your worship will lead to some kind of behavior. Whatever, the God you worship, you become like. So if you worship money, you're gonna become like it. And you're gonna start treating everybody like debtors, and creditors. So here we see, they say they're Christians, but now we got a downturn in the economy. We got an opportunity to make more money and these rich believers can't pass up an opportunity to make more money. So they ignore God and they begin to worship the false God of money. And so it should not surprise us that this brings division and pain and injustice into the community. Nehemiah says it makes God look bad verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So here's what he's saying. Are you not watching me? See, Nehemiah is a leader, and he shows up in town, and he wants to lead, and he wants to do the right thing, and he wants people. Most leadership is meant to be caught and not taught. So he never he hasn't gotten there and said, hey, this is what you need to do. You need to, you know, rich people, go and give your money to the poor. Go help your poor brothers and sisters. Why? They sh- he's In his mind, they should just know how to do this. You know, like read the Bible, read the Torah. that You should know how to do this. Follow me as I follow Christ. I've been, he's been doing it. He's been loaning money with no interest, and he's helping his poor brothers and sisters. And he's like, have you not watched me? Have you not watched me? And he's like, guys, stop charging exorbitant interest to your own brothers. Verse 11. Return, uh uh-oh, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Okay, Here's, what's, here's what he's saying. Repent for the sin that you've committed against your brothers and sisters. And repentance looks like restoration. Repentance is not just pray a prayer to God and then go buy a new car with the money you took from your Christian brothers and sisters, right? Repentance isn't not, I, I went and stole money, oh, now I need to repent because I don't want to go to hell, so I'm gonna repent and then I'm gonna go buy a new outfit with his, out, with his money, no, repentance is a change of direction, not just a change of mind or a change of heart. So he calls them to repent and restore what, he stole, what they've stole from the poor. Now, let me just say, this is not some kind of Marxist governmental socialist program to redistribute the wealth of society by taking from the rich and giving to the poor. No, this is Nehemiah, calling the rich believers out for their exploitation of the poor during a famine and telling them that they better bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. In other words, you repent by giving back what you stole. Repentance is an action that costs us something. So the rich here, he says, give back the assets that you took from the poor believers. Now look at verse 12. You're about, to, listen, I know it's getting heavier in here. You can feel it building, but you're about, re, you're about to see what revival really looks like. Revival doesn't look like people running around and screaming Jesus's name and, 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 and just shouting his name. Re, re, revival looks like people repenting. Here's what happens, verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say, That's what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like, all right, we're gonna confess our sins and we're gonna give back what we took. Now this is interesting what we're about to see here. This is a covenant community. You hear that word around here a lot. They've made made a covenant with God to worship God first and to treat each other. Let's just use the, the first of the the commandments, right? The first table of the law, the first commandments are how we're supposed to treat God. We're supposed to worship Him and Him alone. And the second table of the commandments, the other six, are how we're supposed to treat one another. Part of belonging to the covenant community is we make that commitment. We're gonna treat you the way you're supposed to be treated and we're gonna worship God first and foremost. And when we break that covenant, listen, something, we we need to acknowledge it, right? That there's blessings for obeying it and there's curses for disobeying it. So what Nehemiah does in this moment is he's the governor. He's the governor, right? And he doesn't have any judicial authority over the people of God as far as a worshiping community. So what he says is like, okay, you say you're going to repent. Bring the priests in. Look at verse 12. Then they said, oh no, yeah, the, verse 13. I'm sorry. I also no, I'm sorry. Verse 12. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. He's the governor he doesn't have a personal relationship with everybody in the community. He's he's too good of a leader for that. He's leading a lot of people and when you're leading a lot of people, you can't have a personal relationship with every single person you're leading. It's physically impossible. But the priests have their local communities, their smaller conglomerate of people that they can have personal accountability with and they know them face to face. So he brings the priests together. He says, make the people swear. You see who's swearing and now it's your responsibility to go make sure they're actually going to fulfill their end of the promise, okay? Now look what else he says. Verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. See, this is covenantal here. We have the covenantal curses. He says, you've sinned against God and you've sinned against these people. And now you need to renew your covenant with God and swear to keep your promises to restore what you took. And listen, with any covenant, there are promises of blessing for keeping it and promises of curses for disobedience. And Nehemiah does a little illustration here. Something that Paul does in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 18, verse 6, he shakes out his robe. Now, what is going on there? Their robes had a pocket on the inside, you know, where you kept your chapstick, right? And, and, he's, and he's, or you keep your change, or you keep whatever, and if you turn that upside down and you shake it out, we know what happens with that. It all falls out. And look at the image that Nehemiah is telling the people here. In front of the priests, making them swear to keep the covenant of God, and he's saying, If you refuse to keep the covenant, which looks like giving back everything you stole, so giving financially, if you refuse to keep the covenant, God will shake you empty like I'm shaking this robe empty. And the Apostle Paul does the same thing in the New Testament in Acts chapter 18. And what he's saying there is this, if you refuse to repent and obey me, God will empty you. He will shake you and take everything from you. Now let me tell you, this is still true. God is the center of all reality. He is the one who has created all things. He is the rightful owner of all of creation. When the Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that's what it means. He owns it all. He owns all the wealth that you think you own. You are actually only a steward, you've been given that wealth for a small period of time, however you're on this planet. And one of the implications of this reality is that we owe God everything. And yet many of us barely acknowledge His existence. And the last Old Testament book of the Bible takes this reality a step further. Malachi chapter three, and just let me tell you as I read this, chapter three, verse six. Most pastors won't read this verse in church anymore because they're too afraid of offending their people. But listen to what verse six says. For I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change. And so if you have a problem with what I'm going to read to you, you have a problem with God and not me. So send him the email this time. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, O believers, are not consumed. Why has God not consumed us and destroyed us? Because God is gracious and he doesn't change. Now keep reading. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. They've broken commandments, just like the people in Nehemiah's day, just like us in our our day. But listen to this gracious promise from the God who never changes. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Is that good news? If we've walked away from God, God says, return to me, and I will return to you. If we've broken commandments, God says, return to me, and I will return to you. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. But listen to this. We have to take it one step farther. We have to take that to its logical conclusion or its logical next step. We need to ask what they ask. We'll return. What do you mean by return? Here's what he says. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say... How shall we return? Will man rob God? That just got heavy. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have I robbed you, God? In your tithes and contributions. A tithe is 10% of everything that you bring in. You're meant to give that back to God. And contributions is offerings above that. You have robbed me in your tithes and offerings. Therefore, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Bring the Full tithe. Bring the full 10% into the storehouse. That's the church here. That there may be food in my house. Well, that's interesting. Food in my house. What's, what are we dealing with in Nehemiah? A lack of food, a downturn in the economy, and now they don't have food. See, what he's saying here is if the people of God had been obedient and giving their tithes to the church where they belong, when there's a downturn in the economy, the church has the resources to feed the poor. The church has the resources to meet the needs. And they don't have to go to the money changers. They don't have to go to the ones that are exacting exorbitant interest from them. And then he says, the blessings of the covenant. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I'll not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. See, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience here. Malachi says anyone who doesn't give 10% of all their earnings plus offerings over and above that is actually robbing God. How many of us in this room are God robbers? And Nehemiah says, the world should be looking in and seeing our generosity because God is so generous to us that we are just stewards. He lets us keep 90% and we should be very gracious and we should have a just society. And the world laughs at us. And here's the reality that people have been saying for decades. If every Christian who claimed to be a Christian actually tithed, we wouldn't need the government's help dealing with the poor. And the government is terrible dealing with the poor. But the church can't do what God's called us to do because Christians don't obey God with their money. Why? Because often we worship money and not God. So God, as the creator, has given us the power to get wealth, the scripture says, has given us the market conditions, has given us the DNA that we needed and the IQ that we needed and the strong back that we needed and provided all of the circumstances for us to go out and make money. And therefore, since he's given that all to us, and it's all his anyways, he asks us to give 10% back to him. But on top of that, God, God... has given us more. Though we owe God everything and we fail to give Him even close to what He deserves, God has been even more gracious to us. He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to create a way for robbers to get back into right relationship with God. As the song that we said, there's power in the blood of Jesus. It's the most powerful thing on the earth. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can turn sinners into saints, can turn enemies into children of God, can turn those who are walking in darkness into children of light. That Jesus Christ came to create a way for us to get made right, to get back into a right relationship with God. That Jesus came and put on flesh and dwelt among us and obeyed God in our place as our covenant head, our covenant representative. Jesus then took the curse that we earned through our covenant breaking. Nehemiah says, if you don't make it right through your repentance... You're going to be shaken loose. Malachi says if you don't give 10% and above and beyond that, you're going to be cursed for that. And Jesus comes and takes the curse. On the cross, Jesus was emptied for us, he was shaken, he was stripped naked. He was stripped of his family. On the cross, he's looking down and he's making final provisions for his mother. With John, he says, behold your mother, mother Mary, behold your son. Jesus had, he had no home to lay his head. He had no, you know, resources left. He was stripped of everything. The last thing that he owned was on his body and it was stripped and they, and they played dice for it. He was stripped naked. He was tortured and killed. But worse than all of that, Jesus became a curse for us. That means for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus felt the Father's displeasure. He took the wrath of God that was poured out against sin. Jesus took it on himself. And he did all of this and much more to forgive us and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness and to bring us back into right relationship with God. And listen, all of these blessings and more and plus eternal life with God can be yours if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. All of that can be yours. But if you don't, you will be emptied. If you choose to worship money instead of Jesus Christ, you will lose everything. The modern trope is true that you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, that you take nothing with it. The modern myth of The dragon brooding over its hoard of gold and the more a person broods over their hoard of gold, the more dragon-like they become is true. And on your death, you will lose it all. And even if you have a million in the bank, the government is taking that from you. Jesus says it even starker in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, quote, if anyone would come after me, that means if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to receive eternal life, if anyone wants to become a Christian, listen to what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's what it means. I'm no longer the boss of my own life. I'm no longer the Lord of my own life. I'm no longer the king. I don't get to determine how I use my money. Jesus determines how I use my money. Jesus determines what I should say and shouldn't say. Jesus is the Lord of my life. Now he keeps on. He goes and reads more, or he says more. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Jesus, it's yours. I give you my life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So when you... Give away your life and say, Jesus, you are now my life. Jesus gives it back to us with interest. But look at this last sentence. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here's what he's saying. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is more glorious than any of our riches. And if we're not willing to lay down our riches and lay down our wealth and lay down our comfort to worship Jesus, we will be shaken and we will lose it all. We will lose the stuff that we've gotten. We will lose the relationships that we've made. And we will, relo- we will lose our own soul. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. What does that mean? It means you get your soul. It means you get eternal life with God. It means you get your relationships and your family and you're gonna bring in who knows what what the wealth is gonna look like in the new heavens and the new earth. You get it all. Now look, this is a heavy moment. Look how the people respond to this moment. The last verse. And all the assembly said, amen. Now, why do we say amen? Because the Bible says amen. That's why we say amen. Omen, what does amen mean? So be it. That's what it means. It means let it be so. So be it. So he says this. He says, repent, give it all back, and God will bless you. If you don't, you're going to be shaken out and emptied. What do the people say? This is what repentance looks like. They say, amen, we're in, let's do this. That's what they say. Look, and the assembly said amen and they praised the Lord and the people did as they promised. The people did as they promised. There's at least, I'm just gonna address two, two groups of people in here in my final remarks this morning. Number one, you don't worship Jesus. I'm gonna offer you the gospel. I'm going to offer you grace. I'm going to offer you a bridge back to God that you can know God and he can heal your soul and he can forgive your sins and he can give you purpose in this life. God offers all of that to you and all you have to do is believe in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and have the spirit apply that to you by faith. That's all it takes. Believe and trust and follow Jesus. Let's offer you by faith. But there's a second group of people in here that I need to address this morning and that's those of you who have already done what I just said. But if you searched your heart, you know that the idol of money is on the throne of your heart. And you don't tithe. And you haven't been generous. What is generous? Generous starts at 10% and then it's above and beyond that. And here's what the scripture tells me. The scripture tells me to not allow people, Christians, who claim Christ, to eat of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And if they do, they're eating damnation unto their soul. And so what I'm saying, if you are a Christian, and you are not committed to tithing or doing everything at all possible to get to that place faithfully, do not come down here and eat because you're eating damnation unto your soul. You think you can actually trick God by saying you worship God and being a part of a covenant community, but then never making the commitment to true repentance, which is going to affect your bank account. And I don't want you to come down here and think you're in right relationship with God and eat damnation unto your soul. So don't do that. But if you are convicted of your sin and the Spirit of God is bringing repentance to your heart, and you want to be, you want to do what these people did and say amen, and you're going to leave here today, and you're going to bear fruit in keeping repentance, and you're going to send an email to Ben if you need to, and you're going to set up automatic withdrawal from your bank, and you're going to get back on track and give your tithes for, to the work of God, then come receive forgiveness and eat this meal with us this morning. We are We'll only accomplish what God has called us to accomplish in this city if Christians are actually obeying Jesus. That's it. God's called us to build a church building or, or buy a church building. God's called us to help the poor among us. God's called us to staff, to pay our staff and to do good gospel ministry here. That only happens with God's people, with an eye on the gospel, are faithful and obedient to the calling of God on their life. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your grace. We owe you everything. We are nothing but stewards of the resources you've given us, and you let us keep 90% of it. You are so gracious to us, and you saved us for free. You saved us, didn't cost us anything, cost Jesus everything. I pray that your people would be enamored by the grace of God poured out in Jesus Christ's sacrifice for ourselves. And you would enable us, as difficult it is, as it is in our society today, we're being taxed out our ears by the government, and, and we're in the most lavish society, and money is, so, is just flourishing around us in so many different ways, and it tempts us to worship it. God, you would help us keep you first in our worship. Help us put our money where our mouth is. Help us obey you in this. God, as Christians have been forgiven of their sins, united together by the body of Christ, come together. We make a covenant with one another, again, to walk this out, to be this type of people, to be this type of community. So would you seal this commitment we're making with one another and you today through this covenant meal? Would you do it? Jesus, you broke the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you and you took the cup. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so we eat this in faithfulness to you. We look to your second coming. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.